Welcome to the Entrepreneur's MBA, bringing you lessons from real-life entrepreneurs they don't teach in business school. Here's your host, business coach and marketing strategist, Adam Kipnis. Every business wants to grow. Every business needs to grow. But can every business handle exponential growth? How do you position yourself in order to make growth work for you. I know that sounds like a weird concept, but you could turn on the greatest growth engine in the world, but if your business can't do it, then you're in problems. I'm Adam Kipnis, host of the Entrepreneur's MBA podcast. Thanks for listening today. In my world, my job is to help you get ready for growth. My guest today, his job is to get you exponential growth. Growth. So make sure you're in the right position. Make sure you can handle it because when you turn it on, and your business grows, we want it to grow successfully, we want your clients to be happy, we want them to come back and be raving fans. Thanks again for being here, and thanks Daryl, Amy, for joining me today, appreciate it. Hey, it's great to be here, Adam, thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. Uh, you know, but before we get to the, the hyper growth that, that you build for your clients, and you've been successful doing it for years, where did you start, how did, how'd you learn how to do this? So you can do it successfully because so many businesses can't grow and don't know what to do. Yeah. Well, I like to joke. I'm a recovering sales uh, professional. I'm down to therapy twice a week. And uh, at the same time, I um, started my career in business to business sales. So hardcore on the street, prospecting for new business, closing business. At the same time, I had a marketing degree in my hip pocket and things kind of came together in 2004. I started my own sales training company. Um, and at the same time, my very first client came to me and said, hey, Daryl, everything you've taught our sales team is fantastic. Our marketing doesn't say anything about it. Do you build websites? Next thing you know, um, I spent the last 17 years in a journey of also helping companies develop and execute marketing plans. So one foot in the sales world, one foot in the marketing world, all while being a business owner. The last 17 years has uh, just been a fun journey of helping great businesses grow their revenue. That's awesome. And when you started, did, did you start as a business or did you start with one client and a business emerged? I started with the goal of building a business. And, um, you know, like, I, like every entrepreneur, there's that, that moment, right, where I, actually, I think it's the season before you start your business where, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night with cold sweats. For me, it, it was, um, I was leaving a fantastic corporate job in 2003. I had a great job with a global technology company, um, very comfortable job, but I always knew I wanted to do something on my own. So I had this vision of, of starting a training business um, and consulting, helping businesses um, in that technology world um, expand into new areas. And I didn't realize that it, it was going to, that the journey was going to be what I thought it, I, I had like all of his totally different expectations of what actually unfolded. So I did start with, uh, with, a, with a business in mind, not just a client, but at the same time, um, I found as I started serving my clients, the opportunities were a little bit different than, than what I expected um, and probably better than what I expected, which is good. No, that, that's awesome. And, and client expectations are, are, are always the driver of the business, right? If, if, if we offer one thing and clients expect another, it's a, it's a very different conversation. When yeah, you, no doubt. When you got going, uh, knowing that you wanted to build a business and knowing this wasn't just a, 
sort of air quotes consulting business. Right. Yeah. It, it became more hands-on. When did you start to, to, to look at, all right, what are my KPIs? Who are my vendors? When do I need to bring on a, an employee, a partner? Mm -hmm. How did that all unfold? Because you're also delivering the service, right? You yeah. sold it, which is great because yep. you had that skill. And now you've got to deliver. How, how did you translate the, you know, the business owner hat? Yeah, that's, a, that is a really, really good question. And I think it's, it's a hurdle that is, um, you know, it's a struggle for a lot of people to get over. For me, um, I, I was forced into that by generating demand. So, you know, I'm a sales guy. Um, and, and so as, as it turned out, when I launched the business, the first year, um, I was going out during the week doing sales training. And, um, and then in the process of doing that, um, these other opportunities to begin, companies began outsourcing their marketing to me. So um, I would do sales training two or three days a week, the rest of it, you know, nights and weekends, I'm, I'm working on marketing. And um, it was, it was during that season, it was, it, you know, it just became a capacity issue. I, I kind of scaled the business based on, on demand. So it began with um, hiring some freelancers to, to offload some of the components of the, the work I was doing. Um, and then ultimately, I mean, ultimately ended up, you know, 17 employees, six figures, or I'm sorry, seven figures of income into the um, agency. Things were, were moving along really well, but that, that progression just kind of happened slowly with demand. And, and I think, um, you know, I kind of always had in mind what the org chart would look like, um, even though I was wearing uh, <laughs> many, many hats at the beginning. Um, and it seemed like as the business grew, I just kind of, you know, looked at um, like, what are, what are the things that I'm not good at? What are the things that drain the life out of me? And, and how can I hire or partner in those areas? And, and uh, you know, it, that I, I, I'd like to say I had some huge strategic plan to make all that happen. Um, but all of it began, actually the whole business began um, out of, I was at a workshop um, by a guy named Andy Stanley. And I don't remember much about what he said. But what he did say is, I want you to go outside and I want you to make a list of everything you're good at and everything you enjoy doing. So I had my two columns. I listed all that out. And I came back into the, the conference and he goes, okay, here's my advice. Stop doing everything else. <laughs> you know, like, and so I realized when I started my business, Adam, that I, I had to do a bunch of things that I didn't enjoy just by nature of you got to get the grind to get it going. Um, but I always had that piece of paper with the two columns in mind so that as I grew, I just kind of peeled off the responsibilities that, you know, really weren't my core strength. And, you know, fortunately now, um, 17 years into this journey, um, I've pretty much jettisoned everything <laughs> that isn't on my core strength. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that's maybe that's the ultimate entrepreneur's journey is, uh, you know, over time saying what, you know, what can I um, hire for outsource that's, that's not my core strength. And, uh, you know, and, and now I'm surrounded by a, a great team of people that, uh, that are all working in their strength and life's so much more of a joy when that happens. That's great. And I, 
for strategic planning. You didn't create one originally. That's what I have a job for. So all of you don't have a strategic plan. <laughs> that's right. You do need one. That's what I do. And, and I love that you said that, that you had an org chart in your, in your head. I don't yeah. think enough businesses think about the org chart. They hire when demand creates it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're a technology guy. You came from a technology background. Yeah. How did you build your mental org chart with technology in mind? Did, where did you differentiate between people and, and softwares in your organizational chart? Yeah, people, software, and partners. I use a lot of partners along the way. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. We headed into, we're recording this about four months into the COVID uh, crisis and virtual office world and all of that. Um, I've been running a virtual company since 2004. So we have, I've never had an office. I say never. I had an office a couple of times. I just never went there. I figured it wasn't a, a useful expense. My office has always been my laptop, whether I'm in an airport or working in my home office. Um, same thing with the team. The the business that I started at first was in a very narrow industry. So um, I figured we'd hire for um, talent, not location. And so um, today our team spans five time zones. We're um, all the way from uh, the Atlantic time zone, which I didn't even know was a time zone in North America <laughs> before we brought Lisa on our team, um, all the way across to uh, to the Pacific time zone. We have people in every time zone on our team. And, and so we've been running, and then we have partners also that we lean into that are, are scattered all over um, North America right now as well. And so it's been interesting. I, I looked at, um, you know, I, I think this is such an exciting time to be able to start a business because so many of the barriers that used to be in place in terms of, I mean, just the, the hard costs and practical hassle of owning an office and then the challenge of recruiting people in your local market area to work for you, those things, they're all gone. Um, the infrastructure, it's, you know, the, to bring the technology into it, um, the infrastructure is virtually free, right? To be able to pull all of this off and spin up a company. So I, I think it's a real exciting time. And I, for me, I never, even 17 years ago, I'd been, I didn't want to work in an office. I'd already had a home office with the technology company I was working with. I'd worked in offices before. Um, I wanted to, to uh, set up a company where we brought in people who were great at what they do, motiv- motivated uh, to do great work and, you know, and, and be able to bring those people in, in an environment that made it really, really uh, easy and enjoyable to come to work, which, you know, for me is walking down the hall. So, um, and down the, obviously down quite a few uh, airport jetways, but uh, yeah. So it's, I I think Adam, this is a, you know, this is a really interesting time in history to be able to start a business. It's, it's um, in, in, I don't think it's ever been easier to start a business in so many ways. There's so many barriers removed. I would agree. And I think COVID or not, the mm-hmm. virtual the virtual landscape was 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 coming, was coming more. There's a lot of even Fortune yeah. 500 companies that, that have employees that are mostly virtual. Now everyone's mostly virtual uh, unless you're in the service-based industry. And I, I wanna ask you, this is not really where we, what we were talking about, but I do have a question on, on the culture. Right. Businesses mm-hmm. all have a culture. 
You yeah. have a number of employees, you've got time zones. Mm-hmm. How did you, or did you think about your company culture being in a remote environment, being in multiple time zones, having a cross between employees and partners and everyone being on the same page? Where did that come in, in your entrepreneurial journey and how do you think about it today? Yeah, it's, I, well, so where it began, um, actually, right as I was starting my business, I don't remember if it was right before or right after, um, I came across my fi- what has become my favorite Tom Peters book. And, um, you know, we all know In Search Excellence and all of that. He wrote an amazing book that a lot of people haven't heard of called Reimagine. And in Reimagine, and this, once again, this, is, this book's now um, 17, 18 years old, maybe 20 years old. In this really creative book, he kind of put on his future goggles and said, hey, let's reimagine what business might look like, could look like in the future. In fact, now that I'm talking about it, I kind of want to pull it off the shelf after this, uh, this call because I remember it really animated my thinking in terms of um, uh, building a culture around um, doing excellent work. And, um, you know, what, what he was saying in Reimagine is actually what's happened is that um, companies more and more are going to be able to outsource components of their business to agencies, to companies that um, do excellent work because they specialize in it and they love it. So, for example, um, you know, the, the idea would be you could have um, one marketing person in your organization if you're a small business. Um, and you could hire that person, try to manage them, you know, deal with what happens when they get recruited 18 months later and go somewhere else. Or you could outsource that function to a team of marketing people with diverse um, specialties and background. And so um, I began to catch the vision for that. And, and so from the client perspective, it's great because they get the consistency rather than, you know, hiring, you know, leaving, hiring and, you know, all that stuff. But from the, from our, the inside perspective of, you know, what, um, what became in my case, a marketing agency, I've seen this done in so many different businesses now is we got to build a team of people that if they were working for a company and they were the only marketing person, they were kind of sitting out there on an island by themselves. No one really understood them, that type of thing. Now they get to come in and be a part of a community of like-minded professionals that, um, once again, are de- you know the culture is being excellent at what we do and um, enjoying being able to serve multiple clients. I think that is, um, you know, that that opportunity there to create a corporate culture around. Uh, you know, we do something right now for our clients. Uh, we call it communities of practice. So we bring um, inside our client base and our clients are all businesses that want to grow. Um, we specialize in the B2B space. So most of our clients have uh, VPs of sales, sales managers. They also have marketing managers. And so we bring those VPs of sales and sales managers into a community of practice. Because if you think about it, most of them are kind of on, on an island by themselves. So bring them into that community of practice with other sales leaders and they're able to have community and they're able to um, share ideas. They're able to vent. They're able to just hang out with people that understand the inside jokes, you know, all of that. And, and so we create that for our clients, but we kind of have that for ourselves. And I've seen that happen 
as more and more, you know, companies are outsourcing um, virtual CFO, they're outsourcing IT, they're outsourcing all these non-core areas of their business. And it was 20 years ago that uh, Tom Peters and Reimagine kind of laid out, hey, here's where business is going. And, uh, and I just kind of was like, I want to be on that train. And uh, yeah, so we've done it. Fantastic. We're talking with Daryl Amy on the Entrepreneur's MBA podcast. You can find out more about him and see him at revenuegrowthengine.net is his website. His book is Revenue Growth Engine. And um, Daryl, when you started as, as a sales trainer, you started as a salesperson. Now you, then people wanted you to do marketing. I think I'm a bit of an outlier. I think sales is marketing. Marketing is sales. They are really the same thing. How do you think about them? I've got my reasons why I think they're the same, but how do you look at at them either the same or differently? Well, so I I would agree with you. Unfortunately, in practice, um, in most organizations, it's it's very siloed. Even small companies, not just your your big um, Fortune 500 companies. You have the this, and I've got my foot in both worlds, right? I understand the perspective of the salespeople that go. Hey, you know, if it weren't for me, this company wouldn't be in business. I bring the, you know, I bring the deals in, I land them, I take care of managing the client relationships. And, you know, on the other side of it, um, you know, the marketing people could say, well, without me, you know, without us, you wouldn't be anything. You wouldn't have anything to say. There wouldn't be any uh, messaging. You would never get any leads, you know, all of that type of stuff. But what what we find, and this, in my experience, has been uh, epidemic uh, in, in, business. And, and once again, I specialize in the B2B world, um, in particularly in companies that have direct or outside sales forces, is that there is just a really wide gap between sales and marketing. And so, you know, one of the big um, elusive um, things people have talked about for decades is how do we get sales and marketing aligned? I was talking to a, a uh, a rep, uh, sales rep for a bank. Uh, and it was great. He was, it's perfect example. He said, Daryl, earlier today, I went out to meet with a client and they pulled out something that marketing had sent them. It was a new program that I hadn't even heard of. And, uh, you know, so the client's asking me questions about something I've never seen before. Uh, vice versa, every day marketing is creating uh, collateral and campaigns for clients they've never visited. So, um, you know, the, the reality is, yes, um, they're, they're, they're should be the same thing. They should be on the same team. Usually they're not. Here's what I found, though, Adam. I found a trend in Fortune 500 companies in 2018, 18% of Fortune 500 companies had a CRO position, Chief Revenue Officer. Um, and that uh, increased to 31% of companies in the Fortune 500 space had CROs in 2019. I think what is happening to me at that chief revenue officer position, which oversees sales and marketing, is the attempt of companies to go, you know what, let's, let's get the silos out of the way. Let's get everyone working on the same team. Um, in the same direction. And that's, um, you know, and, and that is the spirit, by the way, behind Revenue Growth Engine is putting the framework together for companies, sales and marketing teams to work in alignment. I love that. I love, and I'm glad that you transitioned there because I did want to dig into 
what what it is you do now and and what the revenue growth engine does so many businesses so many of our, our listeners just struggle to unless they get out there and they hustle which is now harder it's easier to talk to people but harder to to necessarily sell to people in today's yeah. environment yeah you can't knock on doors if you're not a hustler because you have to work most people the reason their business fails is because they don't sell enough because they're too busy fulfilling how can how can they think differently and how can you help them think and implement differently with with the revenue growth engine yeah so um there's there's three different ways and i want to start with the one that i usually would explain last and and that is process so if you go into a finance department in a business you find processes you go into an hr department there's an onboarding process a firing process there's a shipping and receiving process every business boiled down to its most basic level is people and processes you go into a sales department and it's usually like the wild west right <laughs> i was just out in wyoming last week on vacation driving through the west and you know most sales departments are like tumbleweeds you hear the eagle flying over dust blows up it, it, there's no processes in so many business I, businesses I visit, the sales team, it's just like, hey, go sell something, go make some calls, right? Where's the process? And so if we're going to um, get predictable growth, we need processes. The other, the corollary is marketing as well. And, you know, marketing people don't get off the hook either because in so many marketing departments, it's fly by the seat of your pants as well. You know, we're going to design something. We're going to run a campaign. We're going to, you know, host an event, but where is the overall process? And then of course the strategy behind that. So I think one of the best things that businesses can do is take a look um, at their sales and marketing um, teams, department, whatever, it, whatever people um, and go, okay, what are the processes that need to be in place? I was just on the phone right before our interview, spent an hour and a half with a company in Texas that does market research. And, um, you know, they've, they've been great company, very good at delivery, had clients for 25 years, but there's, and they have all kinds of processes in place in terms of operations and fulfillment. But, um, you know, as we began talking about their revenue growth engine, it was very evident early on that they had no sales process. There wasn't, uh, you know, a, a, a playbook, if you will. It was, hey, you know, hopefully someone will give us a referral or maybe we might run into something, but where is the process? So I think the best thing, whether you run a, you know, a, a Fortune 500 team or you run a mid-sized business, or even if you're a solopreneur, just getting started on your entrepreneurial journey, um, a good question to ask is, what's my sales process? Um, Gina Wickman is the author of Traction, one of my all-time favorite books. We work with a lot of traction companies. And um, he said, you know, if you can't document it, you can't optimize it. And so I think the baseline for most companies is to put processes in place for sales and marketing. And then you've got something to work with and optimize. Now, interesting you say that. Uh, I actually, uh, a guy I know or that I met, I can't even say I really know him. He sent me the book Traction the other day. So I, I just got it in the mail. So now oh, it's Oh, fantastic. My, I can't wait to my, talk to you about that. Uh, my list to read. So yeah, I'm awesome. going to read it. And, uh, and then I can connect you with him because he, he runs a traction-based traction company. But nice. sales processes. So yeah. my corporate career, 
sales mm -hmm. guy. My company could put whatever processes in place that they want. Mm -hmm. um, but when I'm face to face with someone and just like I do today, right? I'm, I'm looking for clues. I'm asking them questions. Mm -hmm. I'm positioning my offer based on their needs. So when every salesperson is going to be a little bit different, which is mm -hmm. why it's the wild west, like you explained, when you think about a sales process and, and how you, you find out what your revenue growth engine is and mm -hmm. then utilize it, how, how do you work with the personalities? Like, and I want people to think in their own heads, all right, I've got my own personality of how I sell, but how yeah. can I process it? So how do you help companies where they've got a diverse sales group? That's a, I mean, that's a fantastic question. That's one of the reasons one of the members of our, our team is a change management expert. <laughs> so <laughs> it's true. You've got, you know, you do have diverse personalities in sales and I'm a personality profile junkie. So I love that stuff. Um, not only the personality of sales rep, the personality you're selling to, but here's, here's what I found. This is kind of the second, second thing I want to bring into the conversation is probably the one thing, putting personalities aside for a second, the one thing I think a lot of salespeople are really hungry for, uh, both new and experienced is what do I say? Like, <laughs> what do I talk about? What's the message? And so um, this has been a, you know, you go out and you do field rides with a half a dozen different sales reps from the same company and they're all talking about different things, right? So how do we equip and, and they've just kind of formulated it based on what they've picked up over time. Um, how do we equip our sales reps with a message that's, that is effective and consistent? So I've been a huge believer, uh, and this is probably the core of my marketing and sales philosophy, comes from uh, good old Theodore Levitt. Theodore Levitt was the father of modern marketing. He was a Harvard Business School professor in the 1940s, and he used to walk into his classroom on the first day of, of marketing class and he would hold up a drill bit and he would say, which is great to me because when I'm not doing marketing, I'm working in my shop. So this is like a totally <laughs> great analogy for me. He'd hold up a quarter inch drill bit and he would say, nobody in the history of Home Depot or Lowe's or whatever hardware store they had back in the 1940s ever went to the store to buy a drill bit. They went to the store to buy a hole. They needed a hole. And Seth Godin would take it a step further uh, in his book, This Is Marketing, he'd say, well, they didn't buy the whole, they actually bought the ability to hang the picture on the wall so that their wife would be happy with them or what they'd look into their friends, whatever that is. The point of this is buyers don't buy products, they buy outcomes. I think we all know this, but this is something really, really critical to remember when it comes to equipping your sales team with um, message, talk tracks, things to talk about, talking points, if you will is we do a really good job in most companies of product training, but we don't do a really good job in most companies of problem training. In other words, understanding the challenges our clients face, the business outcomes they want, and it, it, making it possible to build the bridge back to the products that we sell. So as a result, a lot of salespeople and marketing people end up communicating um, about product features, specs, how great the company is, rather than actually talking about what the client wants to talk about. So one of the best ways to begin to pull that Wild West sales team in um, and make them more effective is to create what I call an outcomes inventory. So most 
salespeople carry a price book of all the products as an inventory of everything that they sell. But I think they should also have an inventory of all the outcomes they can deliver to their clients. And uh, so one of the things we do with our clients is we begin executing the revenue growth engine strategy. One of the very first things we do is we help them assemble an inventory of all the outcomes they can deliver so that when they're creating marketing material, they're able to draw from that inventory of things that they do to help a business run better. So that when the sales reps go out, it's kind of like, uh, you know, we're in political season right now, right? Everyone has talking points. Um, these become the talking points for the sales reps to be able to, instead of saying we have the greatest widget, to be able to say we help, um, you know, construction companies most of the construction companies we talk to are challenged with blah, 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 and we help them achieve this outcome. So we flip the script upside down and, and begin equipping the reps to talk about outcomes instead of product. And hopefully the marketing people begin buying into that as well, because I think a lot of marketing is product centric and it's, uh, you know, it's just noise until it, it is about the client. I, I think that, that last, whatever it was, three minutes, I think I'm going to listen to a thousand times. Uh, you know, it's, one... it's the ball game. I mean, it really is the ball game. And I got asked yesterday, I was talking to somebody and they said, what's the number one thing that salespeople can do uh, to become more effective? And I said, that is easy. Business acumen, right? Learn about your client's business and their problems, the outcomes they want. Because that's the, I mean, every conversation, every marketing piece of marketing material Everything that comes out of the mouth of your sales team should begin with those things. Otherwise, who cares, right? Right, exactly. The outcomes inventory. You know, I've, and I've heard this, right? And, and I hopefully do this in my own business and, and do this for my clients when I work with them. Uh, but I love the way that you put it because for me, I do strategic planning. Mm -hmm. My businesses know they need to have a strategic plan. They're like, oh yeah, we should really do that. But no one is out there being like, what I need is a strategic plan, right? What they're saying right. is, I want, to I want a revenue. better run business <laughs> right. that's smoother. Yeah. Everyone knows what they're doing so we can grow faster and, and make more money, right? That, that's what they want. That's the outcome. That's right, want. yeah. They, they see in their business, they see the, the, the challenges, they see the holes, they see things aren't working as smoothly. They feel like they're putting out a lot of fires, especially the clients that I work with where the, the founder or CEO is, is usually still in the delivery business. Right. And the strategic plan is how they get there. Right. But no and one wants a strategic plan. No, no one wants to pay for a strategic plan. <laughs> right. No one wants to do no one spend the time, plan. our consultant, all that stuff, but they do want the outcome, which is a growing, thriving business that they can sell or hand off to their kids or, you know, they want the financial. There's so many outcomes. And, you know, what's interesting is, um, and, and we've had a, not to go on a rabbit trail too long, but, uh, you know, with this COVID crisis um, and the disruption to business, one of the things I'll, I'll just say to people listening to the podcast is you need to know your outcomes that your clients want probably shifted in the last 90 days, right? So um, Gartner Group did a really interesting survey in the tech space. They found out that before COVID, the high level outcomes that people wanted were productivity, efficiency, that type of thing. And now the outcomes they want are redundancy, flexibility, resiliency. So you may be selling the exact same product. You just need to talk about it different because the outcomes 
you're selling the same product, but now you're selling different outcomes. And I think every company, you know, every organization, big and small, um, one of the homework pieces of homework from this podcast is to sit down with a blank sheet of paper and go, what are the top five or 10 outcomes that my clients want right now? And, uh, you know, it's not just lower price. <laughs> it's not just lower expenses. That may be part of it, but there's more, right? And um, we got to, this is a time we got to really think, uh, think creatively on that. But it is all about outcomes. And, you know, this um, probably, you know, the, the biggest, uh, there's one more area of, of sales alignment. It's very, very, sales and marketing alignment. It's very close to outcomes, but uh, it's so funny. So the book Revenue Growth Engine, came out of, um, in our agency that I described earlier that we started, uh, we would do quarterly business reviews. Uh, we call them quarterly strategy reviews. So um, eventually we call them growth strategy reviews because what our clients at the beginning of that periodic business review, we would say, hey, before we dive into the results we've been getting, I'm just curious, you know, what's going on in your business right now? What are your top priorities? Um, and we asked people what their top priorities are guess what showed up at the top of the list every time we want to grow revenue. <laughs> so, um, you know, so it, it moved from being a marketing strategy review that we did quarterly to a growth strategy review. And, um, and I think just naturally out of that whole mindset, the whole idea of revenue growth engine bubbled up out of that, but it really came out of the realization. Even the whole title of the book is no business want, no one wants marketing. No one wants sales. What we want is revenue growth. It just so happens that marketing and sales are the means by which you drive revenue growth, but the outcome is revenue growth. And, and I think just even the title of the book itself is a reminder to me to always, always focus on your ideal client and the outcomes they want. So good. And, and the engine part of it is, once you get a repeatable process yes. and know the outcomes that people want, now you have an engine. So my last question as we wrap up, and I, I appreciate everything that, that we talked about. It was uh, fascinating. And again, I'm, I'm going to um, rewind and, and listen to the outcomes uh, portion a lot because I think it's, it's something we, <laughs> we all, all should. We all we should. All, we yeah. all should. You said it so well. What, <laughs> so easy what to forget. <laughs> Right, because we get so used to our thing. Yeah, we like our stuff. We get so you know our practice, but yeah. Uh, anyhow, yeah. So for <laughs> the for the listener, when they're thinking, they're like, "All right, it's just me, or it's just a small group of people, or I, I, I'm growing." Yes, I know I need to do a, a process, and they're right. thinking about outcomes in a different way. But how do they get the the engine part of it? Right, we got. We can talk about the revenue growth part of it. What's one thing they can do today to sort of get that engine part of it beginning to roll other than going to revenuegrowthengine.net, seeing what you have there and getting your book? What's yeah. one thing they can do? Well, I'm gonna, I want to leave with a third thing that, that I want to talk about, and that is um, every engine needs to be focused on something. And the focus of, of an engine, of your growth engine, should be what I call your ideal client. And when I go into a business, we do revenue growth strategy workshops at a business. One of the first questions I'll ask is, hey, tell me about, think of, think of your favorite clients, you know, and everyone in the room will think of one client. I'll say, tell me about that client. What do you like about working with them? 
Um, and, and I mean, these lists have now become predictable, right? They value what we do. They respect us. They call us first. They trust us. Our team likes working with them. They pay the bills on time. You know, and then I'll say, okay, well, this, this client, these clients you've just told me about, if they bought everything that you sell, that you could sell to them, how much would that client be worth over the next 10 years if they bought everything. So we'll add it up. That's always a fun exercise, by the way. Another piece of homework for the, uh, for the listening audience here <laughs> is add that number up. Now, then go to your bread and butter clients, right? The ones that are just your average client and do that same exercise, 10 years of revenue. And I am astounded. I've done this over and over again in different industries and different business size businesses. That ideal client is almost always worth at least 20x the average client. Um, and so you go, okay, well, Daryl, what, or I, I would say to you, like, what would it look like if you focused your business on attracting and serving ideal clients? Now everyone gets nervous at this point, right? Well, what about our other clients? Well, guess what? They all want to be like your ideal clients. So if you structure your business to take great care of ideal clients, your average clients who all want to be like the ideal clients are going to absolutely love it. But in the process, you're going to be able to attract businesses that um, you absolutely enjoy working with and are a great fit for your company. And each one of them is worth 20 X your average client. And this is, you know, this is where we then look and go, okay, well that ideal client, what outcomes do they want in particular? And then who are the people that we need to go after and how can we structure our processes to make sure that in our marketplace, I was in Miami recently working with a client, there were about 95,000 businesses in that marketplace that were candidates for, the, for this, sale, this company's products. They had six salespeople. Do the math on that. The, you know, however, there, we boiled it down to their ideal client. There were about fifteen hundred companies that were like great fit companies. So in that company, here's the rule: one hundred percent of those ideal prospects, they hear from our salespeople on a regular basis. Hundred percent coverage. If you don't want to call on them, we'll find another salesperson who will. These fifteen hundred companies are going to know who we are, and we're going to snuggle up to them. We're going to make sure they know. If any, if you call on anyone else. And we get, that's great. Nothing wrong with that. But these 1500 companies, you know, and so that's what I would say um, is figure out who your ideal client is and then begin to understand what makes them tick, the outcomes they want, build your processes around that. Um, and then you'll have an engine that's focused on the actual clients that are going to help you grow quickly and sustainably. And I think that makes a huge difference in uh, not only the pace of growth, but the long-term success of a company. That's perfect and a, and a perfect way to close. Ideal clients, outcomes they want, build a process around it, do it over and over again. Daryl, Amy, thanks for being with me today. Thanks for the conversation. And um, honestly, the way that you probably just changed the next five days of my life because now I have <laughs> a ton of stuff in my business. But I appreciate the time. I appreciate the knowledge. My pleasure, Adam. Thank you. You're welcome. And thanks everyone for listening to today's episode of the Entrepreneur's MBA podcast. You've been listening to the Entrepreneur's MBA. Download Adam's free book, How to Make More Money in Your Business at www.freebookfromadam.com. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.